Tēnā koutou, malalo lei, warm Pacific greetings. Te whare e tū nei, tēnā koe. rangatera ma, tēnā koutou. Nā manuhiri, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. My name is Bronwyn Labram, and I'm the head of New Zealand and Pacific cultures here at Te Papa. It is my very, very great pleasure and honour to welcome you all here tonight, and how fantastic to see so many of you, we're bursting at the seams, for the launch of this important new publication from Bridget Williams Books and Radio New Zealand. As a historian, I believe we ignore our history and the people that made it at our peril. We cannot understand where we are and where we might go if we don't understand where we've been. And as Māori would say, we walk backwards into the future. We look to the past to inform the way we move into the future. We learn from those who have gone before us. Yet as the editors write in their foreword to the ninth floor, New Zealanders have not been especially good at remembering. As they say, we lurch and tinker and U-turn with little memory of where we have come from. So this book is part of changing that. The privilege of hosting this launch is also part of Te Papa's wider strategy and aspirations. We have an important role which we take very seriously in leading national conversations on critical issues. And we aim to provide a safe place for challenging conversations. And we want to do more of that. Te Papa, of course, would not exist without the foresight of one of our distinguished guests and panelists, the Right Honourable Jim Bolger, who championed the funding of Te Papa when it was still an idea waiting to be realised. I would also like to extend a very warm welcome to our other panellists, the Right Honourable Geoffrey Palmer, who we really have to thank for our nuclear-free status. The Right Honourable Jenny Shipley, whose career is littered with firsts as a woman, but whose contribution and political acumen, as the editors note, is curiously under-examined. And of course, I'm especially thrilled to welcome, can I call her Auntie Helen, to our midst. <laughs> Having this last weekend spent a year with her at the cinema, it's so wonderful for us to have her here for the night. Radio National, I know this audience will all agree, is in Radio New Zealand, sorry, is a national treasure. <laughs> Radio National, Radio New Zealand. And at the moment, it just seems to me to be getting better and better. I would like to acknowledge the Radio New Zealand chairman, Richard Griffith, who's here with us, the Radio New Zealand director, Mike O'Donnell, and Radio New Zealand CEO, Paul Thompson. Guyan Espiner and Tim Watkin, the team, and the team behind the original podcasts, took an audacious idea and they ran with it. Bridget Williams and her team also deserve our warm acknowledgement. For over three decades, their books have made an enduring contribution to New Zealand letters. 
They continue to tell our stories and they add much needed complexity and depth to our knowledge of ourselves. So welcome to you all. I think we're in for a treat this evening. And I'd li now like to hand over to one of the co-editors. Tim Watkin has worked in journalism for over two decades, including at the New Zealand Herald, as deputy editor for The Listener, and more recently as a producer for TVNZ's Q&A and TV3's The Vote in the Nation. He has written for publications as widely ranging as The Guardian and The Washington Post, he blogs, as I'm sure many of this audience know, at pundit.co.nz, and he's currently executive producer for podcasts and series at RNZ, Tim. Thank you very much. Good evening and welcome, everyone. What a fabulous crowd. Thank you so much for so many of you to, to come out and cram into this room and into this space together um, and to help us celebrate the launch of the book. Um, it's a culmination of an idea that came to me about five years ago when I read a book called The President's Club uh, by Nancy Gibbs and Michael Duffy, uh, which told the story of American presidents after their time in power. And I wondered if it was possible to do a similar thing uh, to talk to New Zealand prime ministers here in New Zealand. I was busy making television at the time and didn't have much a chance to do that. But um, when I applied for this job at RNZ, I raised it in my job interview. I thought podcast was the right format for this kind of uh, discussion, and I knew that I'd be, then be working with the only person I knew in New Zealand who could do the interviews, Guy Nespiner. <laughs> we then, though, needed the consent of the Prime Ministers. <laughs> so before any, we go any further, I'd like to again thank them for their time and their patience with us and their involvement in this project. About this time last year, it all came together and we, we did the interviews uh, with these four Prime Ministers and with Mike Moore, uh, who can't be with us tonight. He has sent us apologies and his regards to everyone here and has also said, roll on election day. <laughs> this year, we released the podcast. It's screened on TV and we'll do so again in, uh, next month. And we're now here to launch a book. It's important, I think, for me to just briefly acknowledge other people who have been important to this project. Um, Rebecca Parsons King is here, who um, took some of the photos and videoed uh, the project, and Claire Easton Fallery, who uh, not only shot, directed, and edited the videos you saw online, um, and just did a fantastic job. In fact, she's still working on the project as recently as last night, getting it ready for the screening on TV3 in uh, next month. So um, thank you, guys. To explain how this evening will work, we're going to sit here and have a conversation. Basically, they've agreed to talk uh, about for the next half hour or so, then we'll have a drink and sign some books. We're not taking questions from the floor. This is just a conversation to be part of. Um, uh, it's not a candidate's debate. These people, <laughs> these people are happily beyond that. Um, and uh, we also have had a discussion beforehand while if any conversations around this year's campaign come up, you're most welcome to, to make comment, but I've promised to not get into modern politics. Again, this is not their job anymore to comment on campaigns. So let's get underway. I just wanted to ask each of you, and we can might as well just go down the, the road to, to ask why, 
you got involved with us. Why did you actually agree to, to talk to us, Jim? Because we're polite. <laughs> <laughs> and a very nice people asked us to speak with them for five minutes. It was four hours, actually. <laughs> it was four hours on the day John Key resigned as a matter of interest. We'd, we'd done one half of the interview and uh, paused for lunch. And uh, John Key announced his resignation in the middle of lunch, or came over the radio. Uh, so um, I thought it was fascinating project and idea. Um, like Tim's mentioned, I am passionate we should teach our history. I've bored so many audiences by saying we should teach our colonial history, because we don't. Uh, the Education Department has a sort of conscious effort we won't teach our colonial history. In fact, the previous head of the Ministry of Education, Peter Hughes, almost said that in that many words. And I think this is a huge mistake. You cannot know who you are as a society unless you know your history. And the reason I beat convention, went past the advice of all the finance ministers and treasury and everybody else and built the Papa, was again for that reason, to tell the world who we are and actually to tell ourselves who we are so we have a better understanding of society. Look out across the world and see the extraordinary divisions within societies. Frankly, the rise of white racism is partly because people don't understand their history. So I'm passionate about teaching our history, understanding it, so I'm very happy to contribute to this series. And if this series helped New Zealanders to better understand how we've got where we are, then that's good. So thank you. Ms Clark, the... <laughs> you were the most recent of them. So was it potentially harder for you to, to have this conversation? Uh, in the end, I decided I should be in. Uh, partly because if you don't uh, say a few things yourself, others make them up about you. So oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we might brush you out of history. <laughs> and and having having said that, I think you know really uh, Guyan and Tim did a did a tremendous job. I think they did a lot of research on what they wanted to uh, to get from us, and there wasn't ever a feeling of really being put on the defensive as to you know what the hell did you do that. Uh, it was more really sort of looking at the processes and the sort of reasoning and, you know, thought that went into decisions. So all in all, I thought the, the series came out uh, really well. Thank mm. you. Sir Jeffrey. Well, I agreed to do it because I've always believed in open government. Uh, and I want to endorse what Jim Bolger said about history. Not only do we not only not know our own history, and, and that is really a problem, we don't actually know how we're governed very well either. Uh, and, and, and I... Th <laughs> I, I thought that by doing this, we could add to people's knowledge about how the political system actually makes decisions, how it works, and how people can be involved with it, because we have a very low level of civic virtue in terms of knowing how the system works. Of course, in front of a group like this of Wellington tragics, they all uh, <laughs> are, 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 are obsessed by this. But, but the, the, the further you move out of Wellington, the less interest they have. <laughs> Mr. Pl uh, Dame Jenny, um, did your heart sink a little when we ran and, and you thought about... Well, look, I... I and, um, I mean, Guyan's always a test to former politicians, but again, I would want to reiterate the extent to which RNZ uh, researched these. I think each of us had that experience that there'd been a lot of work done. And I was assured that this was not trying to rewrite history, but rather explore it. 
I think the other great strength was that it allowed our voices to be heard as, and deliver insight in how we saw that time, what the times were like, uh, why we did what we did, and, and put it in context. Uh, as a politician, you often read others' insights into what they think we thought, and it, it, it d delivered the other side of that voice. So on balance, once we got over the is Guyan serious? Is RNZ serious? <laughs> uh, will this be um, a genuine exploration? I, I think it was both a, a really a worthwhile experience because it did take you back uh, to consider those decisions and then to try and share them in a way that was meaningful to those who watched and read. I, I enjoyed the process in the end. Guy, and what were you expecting when you went into these conversations? Because you, as Mr. Bolger says, you sat down with these people eye to eye and talked to talk for four hours. Yeah, and um, I, th I think um, both, um, well, probably all of you, um, maybe with the exception of um, uh, Geoffrey Palmer, were a bit reticent about um, doing the interviews. Um, you listen to Morning Report, and I tend to interrupt people a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah, actually... <laughs> Actually, yes. Jim Bolger did give me quite a bit of advice the morning we visited him in Waikanae about how to do an interview. <laughs> <laughs> and I think Before I left, the interview, of course. I think I left a better interviewer than I arrived, so <laughs> thank you for that. Um, but but the, um, the style was, um, because it's different, right? You know, if you're trying to get something out of someone in five minutes or seven minutes or whatever. Before the pips in the news. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's hard. Um, the, we had the luxury of time, which uh, we, we needed. But also, and we um, just touched on it, uh, we wanted to have them tell their stories in, in their own way. So it was trying to explain the context of why those decisions were made. And it's... It's quite um, relatively rare that um, someone takes just an open angle like that. We didn't have an angle on it. We didn't, we didn't try, to, try to prove that Labour or National has caused this problem or that problem. So um, just took an open attitude to it, I think, which was quite simple and, and works quite well in a book form because you can just pick it up as a, as a question and answer sort of format. So, Dame Jenny, you, you said there about being able to reflect on what the times were like. And one of the things that interested me in the, in the conversations were how you all reflected in your own way that Prime Ministers don't necessarily have the power that we assume they do, that you were very much victim to, well, bound by circumstances to some extent. Do you want to pick up on that, any of you? And, uh, I, I think the system is entirely um, misrepresents itself uh, because a cabinet is a collective and you have to have collective decisions. But the way the public thinks it, that there's only a Prime Minister and none of the other ministers seem to matter, that's even less now than it used to be, and or more. And I think that's most unfortunate because a government is a team effort. Mm. But in time, I, look, you, you, to some extent, you have to play the hand you're dealt. Yes. Uh, every prime minister lives in a different era, whether it's global circumstances or domestic circumstances. And while one goes through an election campaign saying what you'll do, certainly Jim Bolger, in my experience, in, in different ways, uh, what we had hoped to do and what indeed we had to do uh, because circumstances changed, you then, if you are a leader capable of responding to that, uh, make new decisions. And, and look, the public will judge you one way or another, but this interview series allowed us to stand in that time and try and give voice and an explanation to a, a set of circumstances that I hope as students who are studying political science or even those who are interested in the body politic, if you watch the six 
or, or the five, five or six, oh, There's, the five, five series. Not, Number not, six you'll get in the end, I'm sure. But I, I think <laughs> they do tell a story of the democracies that we are privileged to live in, but the way in which different times uh, require leaders to respond in different ways. As, as Jenny expressed, and Geoffrey, uh, prime ministers here have constraints. Now, of course, you can lead and you can, you can get out front and you bring your team with you. These days, you have to bring coalition partners with you. You, you, you can shape the job, but in the end, <laughs> you're not an autocrat. No. You have to take people with mm -hmm. you and fundamentally you have to take an electorate with you. Mm -hmm. So it's always about partnerships, relationships, nurturing those things that will take enough with you. The, the, I'm going to pick up two or three points here. Uh, the cards are dealt often in a way you don't expect. And obviously, I opened up on that in my interview, that the Sunday after the election, I was rung by officials demanding to see me, just to tell me the bad news that the Bank of New Zealand would go broke, belly up, on the Friday, if I didn't take over government before the following Friday election on the Saturday, as we all know, uh, and rescue it on the Friday. <clears throat> And that was costing hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, which we had no expectation of having to spend. Dramatically changes your whole budget. I know this year, hundreds of millions seem to be here, there, and everywhere, and everybody's got hundreds. <laughs> everybody's got hundreds of millions. But back in those more conservative days, <laughs> there's, a, there's a surplus days now. We <laughs> didn't seem to have those hundreds of millions. So that was the hand that was dealt, and Jenny Shipley was in cabinet or came into cabinet then. Uh, and uh, that we had to deal with. And you can't walk away from the whole essence of leadership is to have the courage to lead and confront the bad news as well as be joyful about the good news. Mm -hmm. And in the chair of prime minister, you'll get both, both mixtures. So I think the thought that uh, you elect a dictatorship is a nonsense. Uh, what you elect, you hope, is a person with the capacity to lead the right decisions in the circumstances they're confronted with, because that's what you have to deal with. You can't have some Pollyanna view that the world is all perfect and everybody's nice. You have to actually deal with what's in front of you. And what you're really looking for is a person with the values, and that's hugely important in my view, the values that underpin their beliefs and the intellectual capacity then to lead. Um, so, Geoffrey, you talked about, just picking up on that, you talked about um, the feeling that the job was actually a, a nuisance. Yeah. <laughs> it was. Have, you, have, you, you clearly felt constrained in, well, in, in all kinds of ways. Well, I'd have been... you spoken to Jacinda or Bill about no, that? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. The, the reason why I felt that was that I'd been the Deputy Prime Minister in charge of a lot of big portfolios and running a whole lot of aspects of the government. And I found I didn't have the time to do that because being the Prime Minister was so full of a lot of nonsense that I didn't enjoy. <laughs> I, I had to go and answer silly questions on, on issues of no importance. You, you become part of the celebrity culture. I mean, the, the celebrity culture's wrecking politics. I mean, you, they, they treat politicians like film stars now, and it's stupid. Uh, and, 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 and I just found that being Prime Minister, I didn't have enough time to do that, those parts of the job that I actually thought were most important. I, the, it wasn't helped did by you, the fact I didn't want to be yeah, Prime did, Minister. Yeah, did you... Did you <laughs> <laughs> it, it, 
it is a fundamentally different job from being a minister. Yeah. Minister, oh, yes. you're right into mm -hmm. the portfolio and across all the details of it. And to be successful as a leader, you have to lift yourself out of that to get in the helicopter seat. And mm. you've got to, you know, mm. really over oversee that. You're the helicopter mm. captain as, as, as well. But it is qualitatively different. And I, and I you know, emphasise with Geoffrey, who is an incredible portfolio minister, if you think of the justice reforms and, and so, much, so much that he did. And if you're a, a real policy wonk like that, yeah. you can't do that for yeah. every area <laughs> of policy of a government. Yeah. You, you have although, to although some would say you choose. tried. Oh, did quite a good job of it. Yeah. <laughs> Jenny Shipley, you're nodding your head there about the difference between being a minister and, um, mm. and stepping up to be Prime Minister. What, mm. is, what is that like? Well, I think those of us who had a number of ministerial roles, it, it, my colleagues have described them accurately. You, 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 you can be in the change. There are people who help you facilitate, and, and you can see incremental results. Mm. Leadership is about inspiring people and describing the destination, good or bad, the circumstances... Uh, complex or, or hopeful, uh, and then trying to take the actions required within the resources that we've got available. And I think each of our, as, as Prime Ministers, had different experiences uh, around those circumstances. But it is a matter, you're very aware that you're not only doing your job, but the hopes of the people, uh, not only that you will lead them and lift them, but where you're taking them will be a better place. And I think all leaders are very aware of that um, onerous responsibility, but it's a different skill from being an administrative minister, just delivering the outputs that we'd agreed to do. But, <laughs> but everyone along here on my right and your left, of course, all wanted the job, so let's be quite clear mm. about that. Of course. And, and including this one, because it is that unique possibility to lead. And I was thinking earlier when I was talking about this, the opportunity gave me, for example, take the lead in a totally different way on settling Maori grievances, historic grievances growing out of the treaty, which we had pushed to one side for decade after decade after decade. And having the leadership of the Prime Minister and the authority of the Prime Minister to push that forward is a hell of a lot more than an individual minister trying to do it. So, Absolutely. <coughs> yeah, I, I so, just so perhaps so should observe, Jim, that we started that policy. Uh, <laughs> We dated the, the uh, jurisdiction of the Waitangi Tribunal back to 1840. I started the same set, this, this first set of talks with the Waikato on the settlement. Debate. I mean, uh, that just is a fact. <laughs> but but here's a point. I mean, there is a lot more continuity often than yes, people will give credit for yes. in an election campaign. And things like that have a very long gestation of period. Mm. You yeah. enable the legislation, but actually the negotiation, the deals started to come through uh, in mm. Jim and, and Jenny's time. There's been a bit of debate about infrastructure in this campaign. It's the same. You know, <laughs> to design, plan, get the funding together, the construction teams, these are years-long projects. So Usually, a lot of governments have had a hand. hand can, in I, can I do a, a successful product always has many authors. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm just noticing it here but now. Too many cooks spoil the bottle. I'm just noticing it here now, except I have that sort of lonely feeling at the back of my mind when I went out and settled the Sea Lords deal and the fisheries deal, the ocean fisheries deal, and then on to Tainui and uh, Tahu and that. I was often alone. There weren't many saying, Jim, keep going. No, I didn't hear that from the other side of the house. No. 
So sometimes it's a lonely job being the leader as well. Can, can, I, can I ask some others to pick up on that? Because I, I think what we've just heard, what I started to think when I heard you talking about that was that for most people, you wouldn't want the job. You made the point that you wanted the job. The, the demands, the pressure, the constant scrutiny, the weight of responsibility of running a country. How do you deal with that without it becoming oppressive? Well, most people wouldn't want the job. No. But, uh, you know, for, for those of us who are really career politicians, I mean, what an incredible privilege. What an opportunity to put your mark on the decisions and direction of your, of your country. And if you, if you want to do that, you'll make all the sacrifices you have to to, to to do that job. You know, there will be life after politics. Believe me, it can be quite good. <laughs> but, but while you're in there, you're going to give it your very, very best shot. But it yeah. is incredibly important to sustain your, your family relationships yeah. and friendships because if you don't, you're going to walk out of a political career, oh. a bit of a, an empty shell, and people yes. say, well, where have you been? Uh, so you, know, you, you have to have some balance in your life as, as, as well as I think all of us achieved. I don't think people understand how committed leaders are to public service. So you're right, of course there's pressure, and it's personal, and families really take a lot of flack, and it does take a toll. But it's always counterweighted by the, the fact that as a leader, you're committed to your nation, and that ability and desire to make a difference and the, to uh, deliver public service, to, to go and do what you said you would do in a time in which you try to do it, I think is the counterweight. And you always work out ways to manage. Amazing partners, like uh, I think all of us in one way or another have had, who share the, the sense of mission. So yes, it's hard and there's great weight and great cost, but actually the purpose, the leadership intent and purpose far outweighs the personal cost and hits that you take in my own experience. But I think that the public misunderstands and does not know of the pressures that come on politicians. Those pressures are intense and they are very unpleasant. They include death threats. They include people who won't leave you alone. They, they include an enormous amount. You have to have a constitution like an ox to be a minister of the crown because, because the hours that you have to work, the papers that you have to go through, the things you have to do, the functions you have to go to, the travel you have to do, it is extraordinarily innovating. Uh, and, and, and it really is not something that normal people ever experience. <laughs> it's true. I wonder if we can uh, throw this forward and get some reflections on the current campaign. I'm not going to ask um, to get involved in policies or partisan politics well, we at all. But we should advise them of Jeffrey's view. They should withdraw. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think the, to answer Close that, the country will go we, we are now in the throes of an election campaign in which the whole democracy is energised. What I want to say about that is... In a modern democracy, you have to have democracy all the time, not just at election time. You have to have responsiveness and you have to have public involvement in the decisions all the time, not just the time of elections. And what happens in New Zealand is we tend to go to sleep between the elections and there isn't enough public involvement in the decision-making system. We need in this country much more deliberative democracy if we are not to go the way they've gone in the United States or Britain where their politics is broken. Well, have you got reflections on that? Yeah. Do you think people are um, more engaged in, in this campaign? Do you feel that? Or? Oh, look, there's, a, there's an energy uh, in the campaign, but I also agree that there's an absence of public debate about the sort of New Zealand we'd like to be. Uh, and it's, it, 
you know, it, it is sort of, I, I was going to use the word prostituted, which is probably quite the wrong word, to be honest. <laughs> but but it, look, I think all of us have had experiences where you're trying to build uh, you're, you're trying to build elements. Jim's leadership, uh, Jeffrey's leadership, and then subsequently Helen and mine, and now the current government, on an inclusive society where we couldn't deal with that until we dealt with some of the grievance issues. And where you get a nation that a huge policy has multiple steps, then there's substance and credibility and uh, you know, progress. But a lot of other debates around New Zealand, the sort of work of tomorrow, I mean, who's discussing what AI will do? One or two of the leaders here are doing it, but the big stories of how New Zealand keeps its agile, fleet-footed, small nation in a successful world, I don't know where those debates are. And the body politic and the citizens, we do need to find ways, if we're going to remain a vibrant democracy, to have that. So I regret and lament that it's a six-week, eight-week, noisy, a mm. mm. uh, lot of, a lot of um, form, but not a lot of substance. Right. Uh, I would really love to see us think about what citizens' participation and a lively modern democracy in an IT world. I mean, we must be able to do better. Well, as, as, a, as a frustrated um, you know, producer over years, it can often be hard to get politicians to, to gauge between elections these days because of the risk-averse nature of politics. Is, you know, is, is it, how do no, we combat I think, that? I think journalists are part of the fault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, you've made the made the, made the election campaign now presidential campaign. Right? Yeah. The only two people you want to talk to are the two major party leaders. Yeah. And you have the faintest idea as a general citizen as to what the rest of the senior members of even the two major parties are doing. Yep. Do they ever get a column inch or word in here or there? So I think that is an error because, as we've all said in different ways, the leadership of the country, whoever wins an election relies on the team with them. I mean, it's not a dictatorship. And uh, therefore, I would encourage those who broadcast the news to actually go wider. You've got two weeks to do it now. And, but, <laughs> but seriously, what else do we hear? We hear two leaders, essentially, and I think we've got to do more. I think New Zealanders are interested in their country. I think they're passionately interested in their country. I think we are somewhat more realistic than others, and we know we can't dictate to the world. We don't have the financial resources to tell the world what to do. We certainly don't have the guns and bombs and so forth to tell the world what to do. And the only way we can lead is what we've done in the past, is intellectually and by policies that reflect that intellectual thought. So we can lead in social policy, we can lead in environmental policy, we can lead in a whole range of policies if we put our effort into it. Now, the big challenge to lead on in tomorrow is how do we manage a world where most of the work is done by artificial intelligence? That's the big challenge for the leaders we have today to start talking about the society that will be totally different when most of the jobs that we know about today are gone. 90% of Jeffrey's work, legal work, will be able to be done by artificial intelligence. That's Not of mine. <laughs> <laughs> That is an entirely new world which we're barely chatting about. And it's going to be the most dramatic change in all history, probably, but certainly all the last few hundred years. Ms. Clark, are we focusing on the right things? Well, I was going to come back to the way that the 
the campaigns are covered. Mm. Because when I first ran for Parliament in 1975 and the Piaco electorate, uh, <laughs> the only way you could get heard was to get someone in the Matter Matter Gazette or the Morrinsville mm. Chronicle or whatever to run a little story from you. Mm. I mean, an interview on Radio New Zealand was completely out of the question. Mm. And uh, Geoffrey, I think you might, uh, you might remember, it might have been David Longy, the one TVNZ appearance we got was someone at TVNZ Entertainment, yeah, I think, had yeah. the bright idea of setting up a boxing ring. Yeah. And they asked for four Labor candidates <laughs> and four national. <laughs> and, and I was knocked out of the ring in the first round for using a French word which was laissez-faire. <laughs> <laughs> shocking. <laughs> Absolutely shocking. <laughs> I thought it was in the English dictionary. It was Morrinsville. <laughs> well, my campaign ad in the classifieds in the Morrinsville paper actually said, don't let Morrinsville become Moronsville, vote Clark. <laughs> <laughs> this was actually placed. Anyway, it was all, all very entertaining. But now you've got um, social media, you can go directly and you actually... You don't have to worry so much about whether Guyon wants to interview you or uh, whether it's on the front page of the Herald because you can take your message. But you're worried then when it's fake news. Well, mm. well, yeah, but the papers used to publish a bit of that as well. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I yeah, wouldn't there's, there's, say that. And, and I think our, our media are under terrific pressure. I mean, look how few yeah. journalists there are now at yeah. what we consider you know, the major papers of the country or, I guess, yeah. uh, radio and television. The, the, the internet aids, the social aid media age has put a lot of pressure on professional media. And how that is funded for the future, I think, is a huge issue. Thank heaven we still have... Yeah. You know, public broadcasting yeah. here, but what about the newspapers? You know, what about the, the quality dime. papers like the New York Times, the Washington yeah. Post? Everyone's trying to go digital, uh, and yet that denies information yeah. to people who don't have the money. I think these are huge public policy yeah. issues. Totally but, agree with Helen on that. I think what, what, the, the major issue, a major issue in here, is how do the average person in the world, in our country, in other countries, get knowledge that is fair and balanced, to use a hackneyed phrase. And uh, I think that is a huge challenge. And as you say, thank goodness we do have a publicly funded broadcaster like Radio New Zealand. That's not because we're here with them. It just gives some balance at times into what's going. And uh, I mean, we've seen, you know, the United States is normally an example for just about anything good and bad you can find. But there's one TV channel over there, just 100% politically aligned to one political party. And, you know, uh, and uh, the news there is dubious, to take my view of it anyhow. Uh, and, and so I think that is one of the big issues. But, but the real problem is that in New Zealand there is less confidence in the political system than there used to be because people feel less connected to it. One of the reasons is the absence of media in, in the way that everyone used to read the same media and so everyone knew what was going on. Now it's all dispersed and we don't know what's going to happen to the media. It's going to be one of the great mysteries. But we do know, the political scientists tell us, in 1954, 27% of the population, the voting population, were members of political parties. Now it's down to 2%. So there's much less connection between the political parties and the people. And there's a, la a, a lack of confidence that, that the uh, government system is doing what the people want now. There's a sort of feeling of disillusionment about it, and it sort of comes, it'll come here if we're not very careful. We're nothing like... Trumpery or Brexit here yet, but we but we could if we don't watch it. And, you, you, and part of that consists of having people who are involved all the time and 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 the government listening to them. And 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 there needs to be a democratic renewal that we haven't really got. 
You and Mr. Bolger talked about compulsory voting. Um, yes. You're, you're yeah, obviously a well, strong fan of that. Well, but, I certainly wasn't. But we used to have 80 or 90% voting, so unnecessary. And I've had that argument with Australia, who's had compulsory voting for years and years. And saying to ministers, I thought it wasn't necessary, it wasn't appropriate. People should have the right to not vote if they didn't want to vote. But given the declining percentage that are voting now, I think we should seriously look at whether compulsory voting is one of the options we should look at. It's the price of citizenship, if I put it this way, is that, in fact, you are required to express a view in the ballot box once every three years. Not a very onerous uh, duty on you as a price of citizenship, but hopefully that would encourage everybody to be slightly more informed. We can't go back to the old days that Jeffrey talked about, where most people belonged, or not most, but a high percentage belonged to political parties. That is not going to return, in my view. There is far more exchange between ministers and members of parliament now than ever before. They're all sending out uh, their newsletters on electronics and tweets and God knows what else. Uh, so that's all happening. So the information is getting out there probably much more than ever before. I think the question Jeffrey really was alluding to is whether it's going out in a form that is comprehensible or even remotely balanced, or whether it's also one-sided, we're all doing it right and the other lot are wrong, and that people turn off because they know that's unlikely to be 100% true. I don't know, but, but we do have to address the question how we maintain the public's interest in the political process. Because after all, Churchill said that democracy was the worst form of government except all the others. And but, but, we've but got you know, democracy, so we better hang on to it. But the trouble is now, I noticed uh, that this week, that the police haven't prosecuted anyone in the last three elections for not registering. It is, you do have to register to vote in New Zealand. And a lot of people are not doing that. And there's nothing is done about it. So not only, you have to add all the people who don't vote to the people who don't register. That is a democratic deficit of serious proportions. And if, and if that goes on, what you do is you erode the democratic system by degrees and you lose your liberty by degrees, and that is not a good thing. Democracy has to be nourished. It's a very fragile flower, and you have to, have to feed it and make sure that people are involved in it. Mightn't be the best policy to announce during the election campaign, of course. That, uh, <laughs> possibly. Well, possibly, possibly. Knock on the door. well, no, I, <laughs> I think that's right, Helen. But uh, I think that, you know, as politicians, we also have to look in the mirror and say, yep. are we engaging the public? Because actually, when the issues uh, are uh, put in front of people, and it, it seems like it's going to be a very important decision, and there are real alternatives, turnout does go up. You yep. know, it, it went up in the UK in that last election, largely because youth came out. I think there was a feeling that youth were, felt cheated by Brexit. Yeah. You know, that, that older they, people... They were and they are. They were, they were and they are, in my opinion. They're going to be cheated uh, a long time. So, so they really came out and it made for a very lively campaign mm. and quite, quite an unusual yeah. result, uh, yeah, yeah. actually. I, so I, I'd say the politicians... Uh, you know, don't just harp about low turnout. What are you doing about it? Are you out there? Are you in the face of your community? Are you engaging? Are you exciting? Are you inspiring? And if not, well, we'll get the democracy we deserve, which is a pretty lacklustre one. Oh, well, I think people will be interested tonight to... Um, <laughs> to hear you all agreeing on so much. Obviously, you've spent, you know, parts of your career arguing with each other. But one of the things you, you agreed on in, a lot in the series was... Um, 
our race, how important our race relations are, our welcoming mm. of refugees and our place in the world. I wonder if you want to reflect on that a little bit. That was something that you all felt when we asked you about the challenges for the future and the most important things facing New Zealand. You, you all went to that race relations, refugees, our place in the world place. I'd be interested well, to Well, I'm passionate about that. My worry is, and I've spoken often, the, the stark reality is the white race in the world is dying out. No white society has a birth rate that is at replacement level. So therefore the movement of people is an essential component of the world community. It will go faster, not slower. Yet we have yet to persuade what I describe those of nervous disposition that this new world, this multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-religious world will be better than the old one. So more and more people are trying to build fences, mentally first, then physically if we talk of the US and others, and, and, and legislatively as well, to try and keep out those who don't look like us. And that is, I think, one of the great challenges. I was very pleased that the Prime Ministers in the interviews all saw that as a hugely important component of their responsibilities during their term as leader of the country. But we have to continue to push that. And so do I say to this audience, so do all of you. So do all of you. When I was going, I think I said this, but let me just repeat it. When I was uh, close to settling, the Natahu settlement in the, North Isle, in the South Island, just before the 96 election, I got a letter signed by all sorts of worthies within the party and without to assure me, do not sign it. That'll cost us terribly with votes. Everybody won't accept it. It's all terrible. And of course, we did sign it. The gods were kind. It was a beautiful day, and everybody went away happy. But what we seem to be fearful of is if we share our success with others, that somehow that diminishes us. And in fact, if we're sharing our success by welcoming in, and we all agree there should be more refugees taken as well, if we welcome in others in desperate straits, we benefit us as well as them. This is not a one-way society. This is not a one-way bet. <laughs> I, I think, by and large, we've found unity in diversity. Mm. And while New Zealanders can you know, go through phases of not being so welcoming of different yeah. groups mm. of, of, of people, and that, you know, our history shows that, eventually we, we get over that, and often quite quickly. Uh, and we have to, because we are a very diverse society. But Jim's yes. point is right, that all Western societies are becoming highly diverse mm. societies yes. because we are uh, bringing in the talent, the skills. Mm. Uh, it's also the truth that if you are a, a wealthy Western country, which we are, you are a magnet. Yeah. Uh, now, you know, Europe is a magnet. Yes. North America is a magnet. Uh, but it needs the labour as well. And I think where Jim and I, because we've discussed this, we'll be totally on the same page, is there's really an incredible level of dishonesty about migration yes. policies uh, because advanced societies need the labour they're not generating themselves. We do. And, and you have to be open to that flow of people. I'll perhaps finish the comment with one anecdote. I went to a meeting of European and African leaders on the migration crisis oh. a couple of years ago. And uh, so the Europeans said their thing. And eventually one very significant spokesperson uh, from the African continent said very quietly, you know, we Africans find this, decision, this discussion very interesting because over the centuries, 
We watched people from Europe <laughs> move out from their <laughs> continent. They not only came all the way to the, the foot of Africa, but they peopled the Americas. Asian. They mm. got as far as Australia and New Zealand, she said. Mm. She said, did we Africans ever say, uh, what is this European migration crisis? Mm. <laughs> and the room went very quiet because yeah. she had a point. I mean, migration is part of the human story. Yeah. How on earth did any of us get here, get here. starting <laughs> from the first walker? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> we came because our people were looking for something new, something better for, for, for opportunity, mm. going back to the, you know, the 13th century. Uh, so let's see it as part but of Helen's the human story. But Helen's 100% right. But... <laughs> Just remember that one of the issues in this election campaign is immigration. Yeah, but, but you've got to remember that this is one of the most diverse societies on this planet now. It wasn't when I grew up. It, I grew up in the South Island. There were four Maori families in Nelson, as far as I knew. Uh, and, and look, it's changed enormously. We are going to find, according to Statistics New Zealand, by 2038, the number of Asians living in New Zealand will outnumber Maori. And that is going to have some profound, some profound changes in this society which we're, which we're not really ready for, but which we have to face up to. When I lived in the United States in the south side of Chicago, I saw what it was to have a group of people defined by race and poverty. And it's the inequality of that situation which festers social discontent. And we have to do something about producing some social justice across the whole of the board and not leave some people out of the society so they don't feel they belong to it. Because that's when you get real trouble. And that's... <laughs> I think in, in front of this audience tonight, though, uh, if, if we think about who we are as New Zealanders, uh, we've been on a journey. Geoffrey uh, ran the argument about the legal case for the treaty and so on, and we learned a great deal. Jim, as he's described, uh, uh, confronted the grievances and asked the question whether New Zealanders were ready to try and attempt uh, to put things right, and then Helen and I, in our own ways, have contributed to that. And I think that the thing I... I think is incredibly important, is that all of us in this room spent the first couple of hundred years post-colonization uh, arguing that we should aspire to be the same. And today I think we have a society that is safe for difference and yet has a common purpose. And I, I personally see recovery uh, around people being allowed to know who they are and this enriched environment where the identity of our New Zealand people, whether they are people who came a thousand years ago on Wakaharua or 250 years ago uh, on, on ships from, from Britain or on uh, a 737 uh, more recently. Uh, this is a, a society that's safe for difference and we should keep building that. I think it's exceptional. I think we've got a lot more to do yet, but for me, diversity in our unity is a great strength of the New Zealand we are building. But I despise personally the, 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 the sharp and unworthy discussion around immigration. I mean, we have all migrated. It's only a matter of when, and I think the challenge is where's the blend? You know, how do we, as women or from our ethnic differences, I value who we are and be proud and bring those strengths to the table. New Zealand can 
share some things with the world here around mm. social inclusion. And it's a journey that we should all, not only leaders, but each of us continue to invest in. Where, thank you. <laughs> We're almost out of time, but I want to ask two quick questions and get quick responses from you before we go. Um, one he thinks is, politicians are going to give quick responses. I, <laughs> I live in hope, Jim, I live in hope. Um, the, the first one is, this idea for the book came from this book I read called The, the President's Club, um, which was about ex-presidents and, and how they worked with current um, politicians and so forth. You guys don't get together. You don't, this is a rare occasion. This is a special event to have you all here in one place. Is there a, is there a role for, for you as statespeople in our country? Is there, should we be better, making better use of you? No. <laughs> <laughs> they... They have a House of Lords in England where they put people like that, and we don't, <laughs> we, we don't want a second chamber here. That tried for 100 years and it failed. It was a place where you put retired politicians and put them out to grass. Uh, there, is, there is no real way in which you can do that institutionally, in my view. All you can do is the sort of thing you've been doing here. What you've been doing here is bringing people together, getting their views, fighting the richness of the debate. It, it, you know, we're all much popular, more popular when we're out of office than ever we were, <laughs> uh, uh, and, and people will listen to us more. It's a very strange <laughs> thing. We certainly don't need the House of Lords, no. and we certainly don't need an appointed second chamber, but I think we would benefit from an elected second chamber. Let me test your tolerance. I may have touched it on the interview, it may have been covered, I can't recall. But given the Justice Cook judgment that the treaty was a partnership, former Court of Appeal, uh, that we have a second chamber that is 50% Māori and 50% non-Māori, elected. <laughs> I don't think so. Try that to challenge your thinking and the breadth of your liberalism. You know. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's easy to talk very liberally, but yeah. much more challenging to actually sign up to do it's, something it's in that space. It's very difficult in a democratic system to say some votes are worth more than others. That's the difficulty with the American Senate, which is very... Oh, I totally agree with that. And, and also the House. I mean, you really have very got a long way to go if you depart from the principle of one person, one vote. Mm. Yes. Ms Clark or, or Dame Jenny, is there, a, is there a more informal role that you can play, or do I, you do that? Or I, I think it's informal, and yeah. I, I agree with Geoffrey. You, know, you, you <clears throat> exit the stage and you know, let, let the next generation pick up the baton. Yeah. I think that's important, but you know, from Tempting time to, to time, up, I tend to a project to pick like up the phone every now and again. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the odd tweet out to correct this. <laughs> 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 but, you know, I was thinking of that. Let, let people, let people get, get on with it. Uh, you know, I think Helen's the only one that's sort of made some comments yeah. via tweets. So she hasn't fully got off I'm a fact checker. <laughs> <laughs> Same, Jenny. I think all of us probably have a, a role in, in mentoring future leaders, and it, it's an informal role rather than a, a public role. This nation's a small place, and you know, once uh, people, a, a new leader, Helen and I, I mean, even though we come from different sides of the house, when, when your term is over, you understand that uh, you want to get on with your own life and you have to respect the space that a new leader uh, goes into. But I do want to make the point that often leaders do have a role internationally. 
uh, Jim and I, at least, and Helen, I, is, we are all now part of a group of former presidents and prime ministers. There are two great groups globally. And quietly behind the scenes, those groups power to convene, where you do draw on the experience of former leaders uh, and often behind the scenes support current leaders or go into crises or work with young people. Uh, that's a valuable way where without having to make a lot of noise, you can share that leadership experience and encourage them to uh, look up and think ahead. That's fascinating. Look, I just want to end on and, and come back to the book and just ask you um, broadly, and we can, we can come um, through you, each of you, and, and have a response. Um, there's been a lot of discussion. We've, we're delighted that we've had over half a million page views of this. We're going on two TV channels. We've got the book now. Um, what, what kind of reaction have you had, and what kind of reaction did you have to it in terms of are there things that you didn't like or liked, um, or do you have any anecdotes or stories about the feedback you've had? I think the public reaction to the project has been very, very positive, and I got a lot of feedback that people really enjoyed the, uh, the series of, of interviews, uh, which I guess justifies the decision we each made <clears throat> to go into it. I mean, when I was first asked, it, I took the same attitude as when I'm asked, will I write a book? I said, it's too soon. Mm. But, uh, you know, at some point, you know, you do want to put some thoughts on, on the record. So overall, I'd say it, it's been a successful project. Mm. I, I mean, I been out of politics longer than any of you. I'm, I'm the senior privy councillor in New Zealand now, and we don't even have privy councillors anymore. Uh, but, but, the, but the problem uh, is this, business. that I found that this book produced an enormous amount of reaction. I was walking down the street, and people would stop me and talk about it. I haven't had that experience for years. It was quite remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Guy, and you've had some reactions too, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, I've just had... Um, I was really surprised because, I mean, I wanted to do the project, but I did not think that it would have really broad appeal. I, I had assumed, because when you work in the media nowadays, the feedback kind of is that you know, if you try and do anything too serious or, or too long, then people aren't going to be interested. I mean, that's whether that's right or wrong, that's the feeling that comes back to you as a journalist nowadays, that somehow you have to do stuff that's done in a funny way or, you know, has some gimmicks attached to it. And so the idea of talking to former prime ministers about what they did 30 years ago and then having people... And I had many people just with a backpack on the bus come up to me and say... Oh, the ninth floor. Now, I used to get people coming up to me when I was on television a lot, and I'd read, oh, you're from TV One or whatever it was, but have just ordinary folks coming up and saying, and literally stopping you on Dominion Road or on the bus and saying, the ninth floor, it's really great, <laughs> was, was really exciting and really cool. And so, you know, um, I think that level of engagement was, maybe we've starved them for so long. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe Something we've starved them for so long, and, and, yeah. and, um, and the appetite, the the sort of, you know, um, the, the undercurrent of appetite there was really, really strong. Latent and, and yeah, powerful, wasn't yeah. it? Same, Jenny? Oh, look, I, I agree. I think all of us, certainly I've been amazed at how many people watched it and actually what they, they took out of it. I think it was the fact that they had time and it went past just the, the cliché into what was really behind a lot of that. Uh, there were a few flashpoints when it did come into the public arena because people thought I'd waded back into politics and some of the salacious headlines when it was first publicised uh, had some of the similar reactions that Geoffrey referred to, of, you know, the hate thing. And, um, but they are flashpoints. I think the context of the, the project and 
whether it's valuable. I personally like the fact that both voice and film, I mean, these are so much more relevant in addition to the book. I think you've got the suite covered, uh, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And whichever way you want to come to this topic now, these are going to be enduring resources where if people want to think about where we've come from, uh, it's highly accessible. And I personally think the radio technique you've used mm. may have many other applications of important events in history where you can capture them and record them in a way that may have a great application. It's a great contribution. There's no question about that, quite apart from the fact that we're in it. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, Jim, last oh, word, yeah. word to you. you. You taught, gave Diane some interviewing tips. Can you give us some tips now on what you think we did right and wrong? And I'm always here to help. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from the government. We're always here to help. I, I think it's gone extraordinarily well. I was like, I think everybody but dubious about what was going to happen and how it was going to happen. But uh, the universal, almost, universal response I've got from people has been very positive and uh, very supportive. It wasn't 100%. I got some very wealthy New Zealander who sent me a letter, lengthy, uh, advising me of the errors of my ways of saying that neoliberalism had failed. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and sent me a couple of books to read. One of them was on, <laughs> on how the communist unions in Australia had almost uh, deflected the whole of the Australian war effort in World War II. I have to assure you, you haven't read either of them yet, so I <laughs> <laughs> can't, can't give you the detail of the insights that I might have had to share here tonight if I, if I had have read them. I think the most important thing is if we have caused some people to give it another thought to a particular issue, whatever was their particular interest, if they gave a little bit of thought to some of the issues that perhaps they weren't front of mind for them, then I think it's been a huge success. Because after all, it's really not for the egos of the four former, or five with Mike Moore, former prime ministers. It's really, is this an educative way to get some information, some of our history art, some of the issues that have been dealt with in the past, maybe they have lessons that can be replicated into the future and so on. I think that will be hugely beneficial. In the whole period of the early part of coalition government, we might want to go back and read that mm. in two weeks' time or something. You know, it's, it's all there. But I have to say that uh, I thought, uh, Tim, you and Guyan and the team behind you, of course, I thought uh, handled it exceptionally well. And I can praise you now that you're finished. But uh, I, really, <laughs> I really do. I, I think the editing was... Uh, uh, I'm not going back to look at the four hours of raw transcript, but it seemed no, to me that. that you got out the substance of the interview, you covered the key points. The only point I would have liked to have covered that didn't come out, and I'm not sure it came out in the original one. I would have liked to have talked about how we had to break down other barriers to assure the Americans, which did most of that in my time, that we weren't some terrible, evil people down here in the Southwest Pacific. We were actually reasonably intelligent and pretty reasonable in terms of our outlook and our view of the world. But uh, that's, that's another story now. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I worked with the first President Bush and President Clinton to break down those barriers. Mm -hmm. So we've all done our bit, I think. Mm -hmm. And then Helen said a moment ago, then we step off the stage and we leave it to someone else. If they want our advice, I'm sure everyone on this stage is more than happy to give them that advice. <laughs> In fact, I could perhaps add in one or two things now. For the <laughs> God. Uh, <laughs> oh, dear. All right.
Well, look, that's, a go that, that's great, because for us it was a project of, of remembering. And the, the moral power of remembering. the story is that so. uh, retired prime ministers like journalists more than practising politicians. I, uh, <laughs> I must admit, I don't think either I've ever had politicians speak kindly about us like you have in the last few minutes. So thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Reputation's doomed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not, there's no coming back from this, mate. Um, all right. Hey, look, thank you very much again for, your, for coming out this evening, for sharing that wisdom and insight. We really appreciate it. I'm going to hand over to Bridget Williams now from Bridget Williams Books. Thank you, Bridget. Thank you, Tim. And, Well, I'm Bridget Williams, and I'm really speaking here on instead of B, the B, BWB publisher Tom Rennie, who championed this book through from the first discussions with Tim Watkin and Guy Nesfina to this wonderful occasion tonight. And Tom, of course, will be here, but he's committed to another rather more wonderful family occasion tonight. So thank you all so much for coming to share this evening's conversation and celebration. So many of you, and some couldn't get in. I'd particularly like to thank the Prime Ministers for the time, energy and commitment to this project. And we have some small gifts for you that we'll give you sh shortly, and I do hope you enjoy the reading. They are, of course, books. <laughs> we would, and we would like to acknowledge Mike Moore, too, for his support for the book, and I know he wanted to be here this evening. A very warm thank you to Tim and Guyon and Glenn and everyone at Radio New Zealand for the opportunity to work with you on this project, hopefully the first of some more to come. And I'd like to make special mention of Anna Hodge, our freelance editor, who did a superb job of wrangling the trans transcripts into a fine text. Words on the, in radio don't always automatically make a book, and this has become, I think, a very fine book. And the close-knit team at BWB have, as ever, supported all that goes into the making and publishing of a good book. All that we do at BWB would not be possible without the support of the BWB Publishing Trust, and our heartfelt thanks goes to the people and groups that support the Trust, and in turn, BWB. So finally, I would like to acknowledge Te Papa, our hosts tonight, Bronwyn, Dave, and everyone here who has made this event possible. The Te Papa store is here to sell the book at the back somewhere, and Guy and Tim are ready to sign copies. There is some light refreshments to be circulated. I think it's going to be rather like the, the loaves and the fishes, but <laughs> there, there is some food. And there's a cash bar over there. So do stay and enjoy the conversations to come. Thank you.